Welcome to About Empathy, a podcast that focuses on patient, caregiver, and healthcare providers' experiences with serious illness. I'm Dr. Dori Sekaracia. I'm Dr. Giovanna Siriani. And I'm Dr. Irene Ying. We are physicians working in palliative care and psychosocial oncology at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. Our clinical experiences have taught us that there is great wisdom to be learned from the stories of the people we care for and work with every single day. This podcast gives voice to the patient and caregiver experience and what these stories can teach all of us. Today's episode is centered around the theme of authentic interactions. In medicine, but also in life, we are sometimes faced with bad news. And in many societies, including ours, we find it difficult to talk to our friends, family, or patients when they have been diagnosed with a life-altering illness. This can lead to interactions that are inauthentic. We may avoid talking about the diagnosis, we may use excessive euphemisms, or we may focus our efforts on the wrong thing and miss truly being present with the person we care about. Our guest today is Mike. He's here to share his experiences of coping with metastatic colorectal cancer. I met Mike a few years ago in my palliative care clinic when he was referred for pain management. We have known each other, I was just counting the days and the years, almost four years now, when I first met you in the cancer center. Mm -hmm. I brought you in here today because I feel like in the time that I've gotten to know you, you've always been an extremely positive person, but also a very reflective person. And you've gone through a lot with metastatic cancer. Mm -hmm. Do you mind sharing with us a little bit about your journey so far? Yeah, absolutely. So... Four years ago, I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. The tumor was large enough that they had to do a resection. And unfortunately, the surgery led to a very large infection, which is when I basically met you, was to manage the pain initially of just the surgery, but then, of course, post-surgery to help with the infection because the infection lasted just shy of a year. And they had to, of course, get rid of the entire infection because they were planning to use a vac. So once they got rid of all the infection, then I was on a vac for what it was for four or five months. Everything closed up, which was great. Mm -hmm. They were able finally to start doing chemo, did chemo for about a year and a half, I believe. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they were still hoping to cure you of the cancer. Like they were hoping to get rid of the cancer entirely. Yes, because all of the scans from uh, post-surgery were showing no traces. Mm -hmm. The chemo at that time was just really more of a sort of a cleanse just to make sure that anything that was there was gone. Right. But a year and a half after the chemo started, they basically decided, okay, everything's cool. You're clean. It's all good. Mm-hmm. I discharge you from my clinic. Yeah, exactly. I had a port. They took the port out. They mm-hmm. were like, no, you won't need it. It's all, everything's fine. About four months later, one of my scans showed that sure enough, just around the edges of the uh, resection site, the cancer had developed again. And of course, it did spider webbed. So it was all through my pelvic area and it was a cluster of tumors as opposed to one large tumor. So they basically determined, okay, well, unfortunately, it's inoperable. So the point we're at now is we're at a palliative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I did chemo for another two years. And unfortunately, the chemo was doing more damage than the cancer was. Yes. I'd had one of the tumors had blocked my right ureter, which led to a stent, and then eventually closed it completely, which led to a nephrotube. Mm-hmm. And then and you're familiar with this because it was perpetually getting infected. It yeah, basically, I think, from the day I had it, it was I, I could set my watch. I was ready to be every two months in a merge. Yeah, you were admitted every every other month. Yeah. 
Yeah. And including one admission to the ICU. What had happened was the infection had turned into uh, septic shock. So I, I was in ICU for a week, and that was when they ended up doing the left nephrotube mm-hmm. because they determined the right nephrotube wasn't, I guess, working enough. And with all the infection, it was just, it was too much for it. It was overwhelmed. So they figured putting the left nephrotube would sort of help, um, which it did. But then unfortunately, both nephrotubes started to get infections. And then that final stay, the, the big ICU stay, my oncologist determined that we're going to stop the chemo. They, at that point, they had started doing research into the immunotherapy, and I think he actually calls it targeted therapy. Mm-hmm. Luckily, my type of cancer genetically was valid for this type of treatment. So he said, we'll do this, give your body a chance to sort of, you know, heal itself. Mm-hmm. And we were on that for two and a half months. And all of a sudden, all my infections went away. Mm. My health improved. Oh, that's great. And so, yeah, so he, he sort of sat me down and said, honestly, I personally think that the chemotherapy is more damaging than good. Right. Because over the this point, it had been three years. And there had been no, you know, marked reduction. It didn't mean it had kept everything static, mm-hmm. but there was still really, really minimal growth. So in mm-hmm. his opinion, the, the damage the chemo was doing wasn't worth the results we were getting. Right. So he said, at this point, I want to just, ignore chemo as an option and just stick with this targeted therapy. Uh, Panatumumab is yes. what I'm on right now. Mm-hmm. And so he, we've just been on you that. You say it better than I do. Well, I, <laughs> yeah. It took me a while to wrap my tongue around it because I kept wanting, you know, I kept going to the Simpsons, the Obamabo uh, and Tumumab. <laughs> so, I mean, what always really impressed me about seeing you in clinic, because unfortunately I had to see you again, you were having more issues with pain yeah. and infection, yeah. was how optimistic and upbeat you seemed to be. Right. At least you presented that way, mm-hmm. but you were going through a lot. Yeah. So what helped you get through that or what helped you stay in that positive frame of mind? Well, it's a combo. I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I've got a very strong family you know, I'm very close with my family. I have an unbelievable husband. And, you know, it was one of those situations where I'd say almost more freeing to find out, you know, definitively, this is inoperable. This is the situation. That this is knowledge what we will do. That knowledge was, was freeing because there was yeah, yeah, because there was always that sort of, you know, that little thing of like, if I just do this or do that or do this, then it'll be cured. Okay. You know, and it was. It's so sorry. counterintuitive to think of it that yeah. way that it's, it's freeing. Well, it is because yeah. when it's not getting cured then that's when you get really upset. That's when it seems, mm. that's when you sort of, you know, you get that hopelessness because you think, okay, this is never going to be cured. But in your head, there's a little voice saying, oh, but it can be, mm. you know? And mm. so finding out that, you know, it's not something that they can operate on. It's, it's something you're going to have. And now these are the steps we're going to take to manage it, to give me a quality of life for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. It's one of the situations where you just mm. sort of go, okay, so this is my deal. I've got, you know, a limited amount of time. I'm going to make the absolute most of it. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's so yes, it's there were times absolutely where, you know, the positive outlook was a bit of a front. But the other thing is, to be honest, I found it counterproductive, you know, to sort of wallow and whine and feel sorry for myself and bring everybody else down. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, a lot of it was, you know, more of a facade to, for my family. You know, I got to be strong for everyone else because everybody else yeah, completely trying to protect out, them. Right? The second time the cancer came back and then I sort of went, you know, no, I'm not doing this because it was it's exhausting. You know, so I just said, no, no, this is, I'll just, I'll deal with this on my own. Everyone else can just figure it out. Yeah. And that actually was also a big, a big help because that was one of the situations where it was just like, from this point on, you guys deal with it. I'm not going to be here to tell you everything's going to be okay. You just, you figure that out on your own. Okay. You know, I need to use that energy on my on myself. Right, right. You know, but yeah, I mean, truth of the matter is, is it, it is what it is. Yeah. You know, I could choose to, to, you know, to be 
down about it or I could just say, okay, this is it, you know, and enjoy myself. Hmm. Have you, you always know? been that way? Is that to be it, it, to be fair? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I've always been pretty much a, mm. sort of like as you said, a, a you know a glass half full yeah. individual. Mm. Yeah. So that being said, though, I mean, this is still a really tough time for you. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think was the hardest part of it? Whether it was emotional or physical or it was the constant battle between my body and my mind. In my mind, I always thought I was so much stronger. Okay. So it's like, you know, you would, you daily things, like little silly things that you just, you take for granted. And in mind, you think, well, of course, you know, I can do this. I can do a load of laundry. It's a load of laundry. I've done laundry forever, mm-hmm. you know, but physically you literally can't. You so know, it you surprised get, you how it, much of a toll it took on your body. Yeah, and it's that reality check mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, there are all the things that you want to do and you think you can do. And then your body is just saying, oh, I don't care what you think. This is literally what you are capable of. To me, when I saw you, you always looked... I mean, for lack of a better term, like fairly healthy, quote mm-hmm. unquote. Mm-hmm. So was that hard for you? Because I think maybe friends or family saw you and they thought, okay, well, Mike looks pretty good. Yeah. Why isn't he doing this, this and this? Like, did that ever happen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we had discussed previously, I quite early on started a blog. Mm-hmm. I, at one point, I honestly had a paragraph of text saved that I would just paste what was in that paragraph? This the whole explanation of what was going on and mm. here's the situation and I'm going to be fine. We're getting treatment because this course was early on, right? So right. You know, it's just a matter of being strong, blah, 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 rainbows and puppies, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> because I, I was literally getting so many texts and calls and having the same conversations over and mm. over and right. over again. So people were trying to be um, like thoughtful <laughs> and checking in, but it actually took more of a toll on you. Yes. Yeah, because you're basically doing nothing but telling people over and over again how sick you are, mm-hmm. you know? And so the the blog was just a way for me to get that information out, mm-hmm. you know? And then also, too, to sort of work through some issues. Most of it, to be honest, ended up being more of sort of an information thing. But, you know, but a lot of the feedback I got was, A, that all those texts and phone calls stopped because I just told everybody, I have a blog, please go read it. Because then, it, you know, because a lot of people want to be kept in the loop. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to be honest, you know, who has the time? You know, to constantly be updating people and calling people and this and that. And this was was a good method for it. But uh, there was a lot of, you know, people like, oh, but you look so healthy. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, you, oh, you can't possibly be that sick. He looks so healthy. And it's like, I'm sorry, I don't look like I'm dying. Yeah. You know, and well, I, we, we really got frustrating. because well, like You should especially just go for a walk every day, yeah. you know, and build up your energy. Eat kale. <laughs> Drink dandelion tea. <laughs> right. I saw this on Facebook. I saw this on, you know, the health channel, blah, 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 blah. Here's all the things you should be doing that will yeah. make you better. I think that's one of the most common things we hear from patients. You already said the importance was having your family and having people who care about you and love you. The other side of that is... They want to do well, and they're looking everything up on Google, and they're telling you about mm. this dandelion tea. Or I hear dandelion tea all the time. I yeah. don't know why. Because there are a million the, sites saying dandelion the, tea dan- will cure right. everything. And of course, we know if it did, we'd all be yeah, and it tastes like living food. in a world without <laughs> cancer, right? And what was the most helpful thing you remember a friend saying to you? So people are so afraid to just ask direct questions. Okay. You know, everybody wants to sort of dance around it and right. you know, try to be super positive and be strong. Right. It's the people that actually sort of sat me down and said, what's going on? What does this mean? Asking legitimate questions because it's sincere. Mm-hmm. You can tell that they legitimately want to know because everybody does. It's just so many people feel that, you know, it's taboo to talk about it. And that's right. more frustrating because then everybody's dancing around the topic. 
And a lot of people prefaced it by saying, oh, do you mind? Mm -hmm. Never did, because I actually appreciate it more. How did that translate into the medical care you received? Like, were people like fairly direct in terms of discussing things with you? Or was there a bit of dancing around? How was your experience with that? I was very lucky. I had my oncological surgeon, Dr. Ashamala, a rock star. He's he's incredible. And what I love about him is he's very direct. And he, he susses out. The patients initially, I, I get that impression that he definitely probes to see how honest he can be. That's great. You know what I mean, that's and, yes. And I was very upfront with him from the beginning. Same with with Doctor Chan, who's my oncologist. Is you know, I was very upfront from the very beginning. It's like I don't want any sugarcoating. I want mm-hmm. cold hard facts. You know, the more information I have, the better informed I am, the more comfortable I am. Mm-hmm. And with Doctor Small, he was like perfect. So I knew any any appointment I had with him, if there was information, I learned it. I learned all the information I needed to. There was never sort of, I never walked out of that appointment going, oh, you know, yeah, you know, maybe he was, maybe he was sure, Cody. And I always knew that, you know, and as hard as some of those appointments were, at least I knew. Yeah. yeah Good yeah. on you for being yeah. really yeah. direct yeah. and saying, this is the the place I operate from. Yeah. And this is how yeah. I want to know and things. the bulk, including yourself, Dr. Young. I mean, there were, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the doctors I've worked with, it's been great. It's been that first initial couple of meetings to sort of figure out what the relationship will be. Mm-hmm. You know, but I have had a couple of, and it tends to be more the emerged doctors who don't know you. They don't have a history. They don't have the relationship. They don't bother to read your, you know, your, your records and they don't know anything when they walk in there. And a lot of that is sort of dancing around and euphemisms and platitudes. And it's just like, don't bother. Right. You know, and those I find that, that really surprises a lot of them. I think that really catches them off guard, but chances are that's probably the 90% of what they do is platitudes and euphemisms right it's tricky because you are very straightforward about what you want to know yeah. and that's not everybody and some people actually don't really want to know yeah. so you know i know this is a podcast for medical learners but it's also good for patients to say ahead of time this is where i am i don't want to know yeah. all the nitty-gritty details or if there's bad news tell my sister or if they want to know everything to sort of make it clear from the get-go yeah and we talked about this earlier, the one other thing I did, because a lot of the initial appointments, it's a lot of really overwhelming, bad news. So, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, as much as I had said, no, I want to know everything, you get a couple of really big hits and you honestly just zone out. You don't out. hear it anymore. You don't so hear I've made a, I made a point of always making sure I had another person with me at those appointments. That's such a great idea. You yes. know, like most of the time, if he could, my husband was with me and he would actually, be, he actually wrote notes. Wrote note. hmm. You go home and you maybe absorb yeah. like 10% of what Literally. you said. Yeah. And then you come back the next day and yeah. people are like, well, didn't you hear when Dr. So-and-so told you this and this? And the answer is no, not really, mm-hmm. because I was just told I have incurable cancer. Yeah. If I were to ask you, you know, after going through all your experiences, if there is something that you wish that the doctors or nurses or other healthcare professionals knew about you, what you were going through, that might help them do better in providing care for patients, what do you think that would be? So my regular care doctors have all been great, but they also have the luxury of scheduled appointments and history. I find that the times where I come across situations where I think, you know, oh, I wish this was different is unfortunately an eMERGE. One of the biggest issues that I've found is that the emergency department has little to no knowledge of any other department. And it's been several times where, you know, you wait three, four, five hours to find out information that they could have known literally in the first 15 minutes. Like mm-hmm. that first appointment with the triage nurse, it's a simple matter of, oh, well, this is this department schedule. They're not here. 
you choose to proceed from there how you want, as opposed to absolutely take a seat, someone will see you. Then three hours go by, then the second triage nurse says the exact same thing, and another three hours go by, and it's not until you actually speak to a doctor that you find out, oh, as a matter of fact, this department doesn't actually operate unless it's an emergency situation. So you've just sat here for six hours, and you're going to have to come back tomorrow anyways. And then you went home. Right? And it happened four days ago. It happened four days ago. So it's fresh <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> that is so frustrating. You give a certain amount of leeway with Emerge because Emerge is absolutely I, nuts. Right? You, anyone going into an, the emergency department thinking they'll be there in two hours is diluted. Mm-hmm. It's just the nature of the department. I but mean, it helps both sides. I mean, it helps you to say you can go home. And yeah. it also helps yeah. them because... Um, they are dealing with absolute mayhem in yeah. the ER, right? So it's one less thing that they have to sort of keep an eye out for. Yeah. It's a system issue, I think. It is. yeah, people it, don't want to do that to you for sure. Like, oh, no, that's and, not, and you know. Yeah, there's absolutely but there's it's no thought of it. just how do you get the right information at the right time, right? Yeah. For them, for you. Yeah, it was yeah. just, it was just. I remember the, the predominant thought in my head, you know, once I found this information and I was going home incredibly annoyed was literally just flip a page Look at the schedule. Oh, they close at four. No doctor is present unless it's an emergency situation. Literally, that's all they would need to do. Mm-hmm. And that would have been 15, 20 minutes, and I would have gone home and saved everyone the trouble. I guess say that's probably a lesson I've learned over time. Like when I was earlier on in my practice, I like to sort of present more like I knew everything. So I would say, oh, no, you have to stay. This is something that has to be dealt with tonight. Whereas like the longer I've been in practice, the more I'm comfortable with saying like, I have no idea. <laughs> let me just let me go, go check. check in on that and I'll let you know. And to be honest, that's appreciated. Right. Much like honestly, I'm much, I've, I've had situations with doctors who said that to me and it's like, I absolutely appreciate that. It's like, at least I know something's being done mm-hmm. as opposed to, because it does. It, honestly, it comes across as sort of, you know, yeah, just chill out for a bit. You're obviously not dying right now, you know? wait for we'll get as to long you as when we t- get to you literally yeah i remember very clearly i had a situation where i was in emerge for something i don't even remember what it was but the doctor when she came to see me apologized she said i'm sorry it was a bit of a delay i was reading your file and i'm like don't ever apologize you're probably one of the first emerge doctors who's actually read my file i said the 15 minutes you spent reading my file is shorter than the 30 minutes it takes the emerge doctor to interview me to find out the information that was already there right in emerge you talked to four different people and they all ask the exact same questions. And they all seem to have the same clipboard and they all write stuff down. <laughs> it is the same but, clipboard. <laughs> yeah. Communication. You know, it is. is so important. And I remember I remember so clearly that that, you know, it was just it was it was so refreshing because literally we were able to start right away. Yes. You know, because someone like myself who has such, you know, a, a colorful history, it can take a while yeah. to explain everything, you know. And so she walked in and it was let's deal with this current situation. I don't need to find out your history because I already know it because I actually took 15 minutes to read your file. I think that's so important for everyone to hear. And I don't think we can hear that message often enough. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us today. I think you've given us a lot to think about. I think this is a fantastic tool. So I'm happy to, to contribute. Thanks. We are going to take a short break. You are listening to About Empathy. About Empathy is recorded at Wellspring, 
Wellspring Cancer Support Foundation is a network of community-based support centers offering professionally-led programs and services to help people living with cancer and those who care for them overcome the many emotional, social, practical, informational, physical, and functional challenges that typically follow a diagnosis. No referral is necessary, and Wellspring programs are offered free of charge. Visit wellspring.ca to find a center location near you. About Empathy is made possible through education, research, and scholarship grant funding from Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Sunnybrook is committed to patient engagement and care. By partnering with Sunnybrook, we hope that this podcast embeds patient and family experiences in all teaching and learning. To learn more about the education initiatives at Sunnybrook, visit sunnybrook.ca. Welcome back to About Empathy and today's episode's theme of authentic interactions. We just finished talking to Mike about his experiences with metastatic colorectal cancer. Isn't he such a fabulous it was guy? Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I think I've been so fortunate knowing him the last four years, although it's been, you know, a big roller coaster ride for him. I thought he brought up so many really important points about what's important when someone close to you has been diagnosed with advanced cancer or when you are caring for someone who's been diagnosed with a serious Mm -hmm. illness and the importance of just being authentic not really like using euphemisms or dancing around or like using platitudes although you know my experience has been that not everyone is necessarily like that as well. So there was the discussion around it's important to know what someone's preferences are when you're talking to them and giving them information. I think that's such an important point. When he spoke about Dr. Ashmala, he said, you know, for him, he's so honest with him, but he had this sense that that's because he was talking to him and he might do something different with another patient. He was patient. still gauging he like, was how much gauging, you want to know. And that's the key is to ask a patient, how do you like to hear information? How much do you want to know? Do you want someone else here? with? Like, yeah. I think that's such an important message. And it was so good for us to hear that and be reminded of that. Because mm-hmm. it's a simple thing to ask at the beginning. Because mm-hmm. not everybody is like Mike. Exactly. We know that, that's right? That's exactly what I was thinking. Don't tell me. And it's so good to know that because you would phrase things differently. You would still be telling them stuff, but it, there is a different way I think I mean Mike seems very forthright he seems very direct and so uh, I think it comes naturally to him to to advocate for himself and to to express his preferences and so I really admire him for that Uh, but you're right some people either are not like that or don't have the words or maybe because of a language barrier, they can't do that. Yeah. And so I think like what you're saying, Dory, is the healthcare professional then needs to be the one who steps up and says, how do you like to, to hear information, mm-hmm. right? So I think yeah. there's an onus on us. And it's easier for us once we do know, because then we don't see a shocked look on someone's face and have to backtrack right. or deal with upsetting someone. I just think it's good for, for everyone. It was interesting to me what he said about 
how freeing it was to hear that there was no cure. I think that's fascinating. I'm not an oncologist, but I think if I was an oncologist, I might feel who knows, uncomfortable or worried about saying to someone, you know, I don't have a cure for you. But for him, it actually, it freed him is how he described it, which it just blows my mind hearing you have an incurable cancer, but it frees you to do what you want to do and be what you want to be because you've heard that. I think that brings it back to the uncertainty. We hear so often from our patients and their families that the uncertainty is the worst part. And so when you're like, okay, I've heard this unfortunate, terrible news, but I kind of know how things are going to play out ultimately now. It's a little bit liberating in that sense. It's still surprising to hear it from people, but I can understand why he feels that way. Fear of the unknown is probably one of the biggest things I think Mm. I see in my office. Mm. Like with, uh, you know, focusing on counseling now, that fear of the unknown is something that comes up for so many people. I think it's just part of being human. Mm -hmm. It's in our nature not to Mm -hmm. like things that we don't know. And there's something about knowledge, whether it's what you hoped for or not, that you now feel you can move forward somehow. Again, Mm -hmm. something for us to remember, right? How scary it is for people when they are waiting to find something out or how hard that is. Yeah, and I think Mike was telling us before, you know, it didn't just have to do with hearing about his diagnosis or where his cancer was at. He was saying, I need to know if I'm going to have a procedure or if yes. if something yeah. is happening, if I'm having a test, I need to know for my own comfort every single thing that's going to happen and how it's going to happen and then what's going to happen next. To put Mike at ease, that's what needs to happen. Not everybody is like that and not everyone's like Mike to be able to say it outright and say this is what I this is what I want and this is what I need. So I think it, it, it's a little bit of a, a you need both. You know, you need your your healthcare providers <laughs> yeah. to know that that fear of uncertainty is so big that you need to give people the steps. Yeah. And what's going to happen next? I think it's funny cuz even silly little things for me, like when I'm waiting for a flight and Air Canada doesn't tell me why my flight is delayed, <laughs> if they would just tell me it's going to be 3 hours, I'll be fine cuz I'll figure out what to do in 3 hours. But when they say maybe 10 minutes and they do that 30 times, that, I, that is like, such that, a great you know, no no no, that's, <laughs> we could cut this out, but like <laughs> no, that's, that's such a great analogy for the listeners because can you imagine you feel that way about a plane? Yeah, a flight. imagine your health. Imagine it's your life, it's yeah. your health. You're gonna multiply that by a hundred. I thought the other really interesting thing he brought up was how frustrated he was at having to tell the same story over and over mm, again to the point he had like a pre-typed out paragraph for his friends and family. But when he was in the hospital, unfortunately for caregivers, for medical professionals who didn't have that relationship with him, it would be hit or miss whether or not they knew about his very complicated medical history and how much it helped to just take that 15 minutes to look at the chart before you came in. I don't know how you guys do it, but for me, I still want to hear the story from the patient because sometimes messages get crossed, patient doesn't really understand what stage they're in or what's going to happen. So I tend to go through all the notes, go in to see the patient when it's the first time, tell them, hey, I just went through your notes, but 
just to make sure I have everything right, we're on the same page. Do you mind telling me what's your understanding of what's going on right now? I know you've told this story a million times, so I'm really sorry I'm making you do it again. And that little bit of just telling them that you understand where they're coming from can go a long way. For me, I like to hear it from them, but I like to let them know I took the time to look something up. I would go in and say, I had a chance to look at your chart briefly. What I understand is this. Did I get that right? Can you tell me more in your words what happened today, why you're here today, or something like that? But it's that letting them know that you do know they have a large chart, you know they have a large, complex history. And you don't have to spend a lot of time. I think it's just even saying you looked at the chart. It makes them feel cared for, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I struggle. I struggle with that because yeah. I feel so bad. If I, you know, I'm trying to think about an oncology patient, for example, that's coming to emerge, right. and they're seeing one triage nurse, and then they're seeing another nurse, and then they're going to see the emerge maybe resident and then maybe the staff doc and then they'll see if they have to get admitted they'll see an oncologist and so they're telling that story five or six times and so I'm thinking you know by the time they see me I'm maybe the seventh person that they spoke to and they're having to say this over and over again and I just feel bad for them because it's just it's Groundhog Day all the time so I, I you know I struggle with that but then on the other hand you know we've known times when on the chart perhaps something's been transcribed or indicated on the chart that was put there maybe by accident or inaccurately and if we don't hear it from them then it never really gets clarified so it's a tough thing of wanting to balance uh, saving them the hassle of telling the story again but making sure that all the information is accurate yeah i've had patients come in to tell me because here at sunnybrook they can access their notes and they'll come in and tell me this keeps being put in my notes and it's not true Mm -hmm. because we just keep copying and pasting essentially because we assume that it's the truth and just taking that time to sit down and just make sure that it's accurate is so helpful i had one patient who actually did a running count of how many nurses and doctors they had encountered in Mm. their encounters with the healthcare system and it was in the hundreds wow and i even i know they see a lot of people but even for me it was pretty shocking and we expect them to kind of know what everyone has said to them and what everyone's roles yeah. are. And can you imagine the mounting frustration? Why are you asking me this again? I have answered this question so many times. Are you not talking to each other? Are you not talking right. to each other? What What is going on? So I think letting them know you did mm-hmm. realize yeah. everything they've been through and then what you know so far, but you know, is what you're saying right? Is there something they want to tell you in their own words? Mm-hmm. There is one question, you you hate to make them repeat it again, but this question is right. so important for you to make sure the patient understands so you want to ask it again. Like there's some way of melding, I know how hard this is for you. This is what I gleam. I don't want you to have to say right. everything over, but this is what I need. It's an art, I guess, mm. like, you know, as you... I think we could talk about this topic forever. I mean, I think it's something that comes up time and again. I also want to bring this back to when Mike was talking about his close friends and family not really knowing what to say to him. They would ask him circular questions. They would use euphemisms. But what he really appreciated at the end of the day were the people who were more direct, who said, okay, tell me what's going on now. And I guess in that way, that was much more helpful for him because he probably didn't have to put up that act that he said was so draining for him. It took so much energy for him to pretend that everything was going to be okay. And it was so much easier once he could just be 
himself, be genuine about things. And it was much easier when people were straightforward with him. Yeah, because then he felt like he probably didn't have to keep up a front and he wasn't trying to protect others and others could show him more genuine care in that way because he was, you know, maybe being more, more honest and vulnerable about his actual situation. And so others could feel more open to say, you know, how can I help, you know, what's really going on with you? Yeah. I think he helped a lot of people who might hear this to know because it is hard when your family and friends knowing what to say. I think people get scared. Yeah. They don't want to upset someone. They don't want to overstep their bounds and ask something really personal. But what he said made me think that I think if you really care about someone, it comes through with an honest question that says, if you don't want to answer, that's okay. But what's going on? You don't look well or, you know, just something that emotes real care Mm -hmm. that you care about this and it's not superficial i think that's sort of at the heart of empathy right like if you don't really have a good sense of what the person's going through you'll never really be able to be empathic and connect and connect with the patient or the friend or family member yeah so yeah mike really blew me away just so (laughs) honest just so honest and real Thanks for listening to this episode of About Empathy. We hope the story that you heard today has inspired you to engage in compassionate, authentic, and empathic interactions. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Subscribe to About Empathy to get a new episode each week. We would love if you could rate and review our podcast, and please tell your health professional, your colleagues, and your friends about our show. You can visit our website, aboutempathy.com, for more information and to read the show notes from today's episode. You can also be a part of our research project. We are conducting a short three-minute anonymous survey to inform us on the content you get out of each episode. Visit our website, aboutempathy.com, and click on the Take Survey button in the top right corner. About Empathy is a Kickback Productions podcast hosted by Giovanna Siriani, Dori Sakaracha, and Irene Ying. Recorded and produced by Jackie Skinner with additional production and writing by Laura Takahashi. Music by Jerry Finn and Jackie Skinner. The podcast is recorded on-site at Wellspring and funded by an education research and scholarship grant through Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Visit us at aboutempathy.com.